Okay, turn with me to Matthew 11. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 15. We uh, started this two weeks ago when I was here last. And so uh, we'll read it, I'll do some review, and then we will continue on. Uh, The passage says this, Now as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus said that when it comes to humanity, there was never anyone greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest human being ever to live. From the earthly human perspective, his personal character, his privileged calling, and his powerful culmination make him the greatest man that ever lived. As, as people stood back and perceived him, there was just never anyone like him. He was the most powerful personality, the most powerful voice that ever spoke. He had a dynamic ability to communicate. There was never a prophet with more human talent, more significant role to play in human history than John the Baptist. He was unparalleled. Uh, So we saw that from verse 7, back in verse 7, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he's going to make sure that people understand the greatness of John the Baptist, but only as an illustration of a greater spiritual truth. That's why at the end of verse 11, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What he's saying is this, when it comes to human talent and playing a role in human history, there's never been anyone as great as John the Baptist, but when it comes to the spiritual dimension, the least person in the spiritual dimension is greater than the greatest person in the human dimension. That's what he's saying. Uh, now, Jesus reinforces John's greatness, and he does it by discussing three major truths about John that mark his greatness. Uh, as I said, they were his personal character, his privileged calling, his powerful culmination. Last time we looked at his personal character, and then we will, let me review that, and then we'll move on to the other two. Uh, the first way we saw that John revealed his character We had to look back a little bit at verses 2 and 3 in the chapter, and that was that he was a man who could overcome his weakness. Everyone has weaknesses. Everyone has failings and infirmities and problems. The question is whether or not you can overcome them. That's a mark of greatness. The great ones fight through. The the great ones battle through their problems against them. That's the difference, and John had that ability. He was in prison. He was... uh, questioning whether Jesus was really the Messiah or not because Jesus wasn't living up to the current expectations. And so at that point, John's at a low point in his life. He's at a weak place. Circumstances outside influences, lack of information, unfulfilled anticipations have all brought doubt and confusion and perplexity into his mind. So how did he deal with it? 
he goes to Jesus. He sent some disciples and told them to ask if he's the one who should come or if we're looking for somebody else. And they went and they asked, and Jesus demonstrated with miracles, and they went back and they told John, and that settled the issue for John. Uh, you know, it may not be an easy task, but the man who is great is always the person who deals with his weaknesses and overcomes it, and that marked John. So we learned that the first mark of a truly great person is to overcome your weakness. And by the way, we also mentioned that one of the great marks of this kind of man, the true marks of greatness, is humility. Uh, no one ever becomes truly great unless they recognize that they have weaknesses that must be overcome. And John had the humility enough to say, I don't know, I'm not sure. And he said it to his subordinates and he let them act on his behalf. He was a man of humility. Second, he was not only a man who was able to overcome weakness, but he was a man who was strong in his conviction. Look at verse 7. Now, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Jesus asked him a very simple question. Why'd you go out? What'd you go out in the wilderness to see? In other words, what was it about him that drew you out there? Was it because he was a reed shaken by the wind? Was it simply because he was a vacillating, weak character, blowing back and forth with every new idea that comes along? The obvious answer is no. Uh, because if they wanted people like that, they could have found them in their own temple and synagogues. Uh, if they wanted weak, vacillating, ordinary reeds that blew around with every wind, they could have found them in their religious system. They certainly didn't need to go all the way out into the desert to find one. So Jesus is saying, did you go out there because he's just a common, ordinary, garden variety guy, blown about like everyone else with no strength and no conviction? No, you didn't come out here because he was spineless. You didn't come out there because he was weak and pliable. John was not common. John was not compromising. They knew that. He did not hold back his message from anyone. So scripture confirms the value of a person with conviction. So be a person of conviction. That's a mark of greatness. <clears throat> the third mark we saw of John's personal character was his self-denial. Uh, it's another element of greatness. The truly great people are the people who can deny themselves. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Jesus is saying, when you went all the way out into the desert to look and listen to this man, did you go out there to see a man clothed in soft raiment like they were in the king's house? Did you go out there to see another typical guy who's a courtier, who operates in the palace, who favors the king, who does whatever you need to do to get royal favors, who lives a life of luxurious self-indulgence? Hardly. John the Baptist was no self-seeker. His cause was not comfort. His cause was not self-indulgence. His cause was not to see how easy it could be on him. He wasn't interested in the ease of the world. He wasn't interested in gaining favor from people above him who could pat his wallet and give him a life of comfort. He stood apart, unstained by the system. He was above it. He was a man so consumed by a greater cause in his own mind that he couldn't be attracted to the system. His lifestyle was a living protest against self-indulgence. It was a statement against self-centeredness. He was utterly abandoned to the cause that God gave him, that he was not attracted to the world or its standards. His devotion to his ministry completely superseded any personal interest and in comforts. That's a mark of greatness. 
Great people are concerned with reaching a goal. They're concerned with a mission that supersedes any personal comfort or self-indulgence. And that's how it was with John the Baptist. His commitment was a consuming commitment. Uh, so he was a great man. He was remarkable. And people even thought he was the Messiah. Luke 3.15, we're told that people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So he was a tremendous man because of his personal character. And that's where we stopped last time. So let's pick it up with the next thing and we want to see his privileged calling. His privileged calling. Look at verses 9 to 11. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? <clears throat> Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When it comes to task on earth, he was given the greatest task that any human being has ever had. I mean, what could be a greater task than announcing the arrival of God in human flesh? Uh, the only person in the human race that even comes close to John in that regard is Mary. Uh, Mary was chosen to bear the Messiah. But in many ways, John is greater than Mary. Mary gave birth to a baby. John heralded a king. Uh, Mary brought Jesus into 30 years of obscurity. John ushered him into three years of effective ministry. So he was a remarkable man. <coughs> Look at verse 9 again. Jesus asked, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who's more than a prophet. Jesus tells them that he realizes they didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind or a man in self-clothing, but rather they went out to see a prophet. But Jesus says John was more than a prophet. He was, verse 10, the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He was the herald of the Messiah, the forerunner who would announce the coming of the Messiah. Matthew 21, 26 says that the Jewish religious leaders recognized that the people regarded John as a prophet. Uh, a prophet was one who proclaimed God's truth. And when it came to his ability to speak, he was without equal. He was a greater prophet. Just think about this. He was a greater prophet than Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and all the rest. Why? Because he was the man God selected to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He, he was the ultimate prophet. He was the valedictorian among the prophets. Uh, he was the most dynamic, articulate, confrontational, powerful spokesman God ever had. And he was there to do the supreme prophetic task to announce not only that the Messiah was coming, which other prophets had done, but that he was there then. So John's greatness came not only from his personal character, but also from his privileged calling. In his case, the greatest of his personal character matched with the role that he had in history summed up to make him the greatest man that ever lived. You see, true greatness always matches the right man with the right position. A man could have potential greatness, but if he never got into the right field, he'd never know that. 
That's why it's so great when a person is a believer who's submitted to Christ because God knows what your strengths are. And although, and through his expressed will and the spirit of God, he can lead you into that which is the greatest fulfillment of the abilities he has given you. People in the world, they're all on their own to figure out how to best use their talents, skills, and strengths. And if they're lucky, they'll guess correctly. But as Christians, we have God to give us that direction. And remember, he's sovereign over all these things. I mean, you may not be satisfied. Uh, you may not have been satisfied with your career. Yeah, you may have wished you could have done something else in life. But just remember that God is sovereign and he ordains, directs, steers, and guides his children to do that which he desires them to do. And so the man and the mission come together. John was God's chosen voice. Listen to Amos 3.7. Surely your Lord Yahweh does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his slaves, the prophets. John was one of God's slaves, <clears throat> a prophet with a message from God. And it, was, it had been 400 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. There were 400 years of silence from God. But when John came, he spoke with such authority, they knew he was a prophet. He spoke with power and conviction, and people were changed. There was a tremendous amount of excitement. All of them didn't believe his message, but they all recognized that he was a prophet. And then this statement by our Lord in verse 9. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. You could translate it, one who is far more or exceedingly more than a prophet. How could he be more than a prophet? Well, first of all, he not only prophesied, but he himself was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare my way before you. Jesus is quoting from Malachi 3.1. So Jesus is saying that John is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is not only the one who prophesies, he's also the fulfillment of prophecy. So he's more than a prophet, he is a fulfillment of prophecy. And he not only predicted the Messiah, but he baptized the Messiah. So he's not just one who announced the Messiah, he's also the one who ministered to the Messiah, as no other prophet had ever done or would ever do again. He not only said, he will come, but the day came when he said, there he is. Uh, he is more than a prophet because he was not only the last prophet, but he was the fulfillment of prophecy as the forerunner of Christ. You see, the forerunner's task is to prepare everything, especially the hearts of the people for his coming. And so God says, I send him, my messenger, before you, the Messiah, and he'll prepare the hearts of the people for you. But if you think that Jesus' praise of John couldn't get any greater, look at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I think at this point we would all agree, but notice the last sentence of the verse. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? Well, after all, with John's 
personal character, his privileged calling, and his powerful culmination in human history, it would seem that his status as the greatest would be unassailable. But Jesus says that the individual who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. How so? Because true greatness is being a member of God's kingdom. John, Jesus was not in any way uh, putting down John, denigrating John at all, but rather he was bringing out the wonder of being in the kingdom. See, great though he was, John the Baptist belonged to the old order. He proclaimed the need for repentance in view of the coming Messiah. But his function was preliminary to the Christian era. He is classified among those who preceded the kingdom. The greatness of those in the kingdom does not exceed John in terms of character or calling, but rather it refers to privileged position. Those in the kingdom would know about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. They would know about and experience the coming of the Holy Spirit. John wouldn't ever experience any of that. He proclaimed the coming kingdom. He announced the coming Messiah. But he was imprisoned and died without getting to witness and participate in the kingdom. So those in the kingdom have far greater privileges than did John the Baptist. And in that sense, they are greater than him. True greatness is being in God's kingdom. True believers in Christ are already a part of his kingdom. At, that, at this point, it is spiritual, but we participate in it fully. One day it will be a physical kingdom and we will reign with Christ. But because we are in that kingdom, we have a more highly privileged position than John the Baptist. Okay? So, any questions or comments at this point before we move to the next one? Because that is, that's a significant point. Okay? Well, finally, not only was John great because of his personal character and his privileged calling, but he was also great because of his powerful culmination. Look at verses 12 to 14. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Listen carefully. There are three ingredients of greatness. Greatness starts with personal character, but it has to be matched with the right calling. You have to have the right man and the right mission. But thirdly, you've got to have the right impact at the right time. It takes all of that to make it happen. And there were 400 years without a prophet. Great anticipation had been built up as people hoped for the Messiah. So it was the right moment. There was electricity in the air as John came on the scene. And so he brought everything to a powerful culmination. He made waves. He upset the status quo. He had high impact. He created conflict. You'll notice in verse 12 that the word violence is used. He created violence. He stirred up a hornet's nest. When he confronted the Jewish leadership, things became explosive. 
He brought everything to a head. Everywhere he went, there was a violent reaction. He was a man of destiny. His influence was at the crisis moment of redemptive history. And everything was happening all around him just like a hurricane. Jesus is saying, ever since John's been around, there have been problems. It's been two and a half years of this guy. He's in prison, but still the violence goes on. The term kingdom of heaven here is a general term simply referring to God's rule, his will, his message, his principles and purposes. And they have been violently dealt with since John came along. Now, what is the nature of this violence? Now, to understand this, we got to swim in the deep end of the theological pool for a little bit. Uh, I spent at least 90 minutes just studying this one verse because it's a bit confusing. There are excellent Bible scholars who disagree as to what this verse means. So I'm not going to tell you that I'm 100% certain that I'm right. But I think I'm right. I think I'm correct. When I'm done, if you disagree with me, so be it. Uh, but I've got to explain the Greek language here, so I'm going to give you an interpretive explanation of the text, so we will be swimming in the deep end of the pool, okay, for a couple of minutes. There are two possible ways to interpret, to translate, shall I say, to translate this verse. The verb, biazo, right here, which is translated suffers violence, can be read as either a passive voice verb or a middle voice verb. As a passive verb, it would carry the idea of being oppressed or treated violently by others, which would indicate that violence is brought on the kingdom of heaven by those outside of it. <clears throat> and that did happen. The Pharisees and the scribes had attacked John verbally, and Herod had attacked him physically. The kingdom was being violently denied and rejected. And because it was being rejected in its spiritual dimension, the kingdom would not come in its earthly millennial dimension. Soon the enemies of the kingdom would kill not only John, but even the Messiah himself. They would destroy both the herald and the king. And at the end of the verse, it would mean that violent men are seizing it. That would refer to those who are trying to stop it. And many of them, by the way, were trying to bring in a false kingdom by political means, such as the zealots who were trying to establish the kingdom of God politically. Uh, so the, they were trying to seize the kingdom of God from a political perspective and then establish it. So the kingdom of heaven, which is the rule of God and the implementation of his standards, <coughs> was being attacked. And they were trying to stop it, and they disallowed its earthly reality, which had to be postponed to the future. That's if you read that as a passive voice verb. But if we read this as a middle voice verb, it carries the idea of applying force or of entering forcibly. If that is the correct way to read it, the translation would be, the kingdom of heaven is vigorously pressing itself forward and people are forcefully entering it. It means the very opposite of the passive voice. What it says in the middle voice is that the kingdom is moving ahead with triumphal force and forceful people are entering it. 
is saying that John the Baptist is effective. He's moving ahead and the kingdom is pressing vigorously or violently as he charges through the sinfulness of the world. And if you look at it, that's what happened. John the Baptist had a marvelous impact, didn't he? People were turning to God. They were repenting of their sins. He was leading many to Christ. In Luke 1, 16 and 17, speaking of John the Baptist, it tells us, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, he's going to go with great effect and turn many hearts to God. So if you take it as a middle voice verb, then the kingdom is moving ahead vigorously. If that's the case, then Jesus was continuing to mark out the greatness of John. Through him, the kingdom was vigorously moving ahead. He was God's tool to purify the people. It's God's tool to get them ready. And when Christ came, the kingdom could be seen. The sick were healed, the lepers were cleansed, the dead were raised, the sinners were forgiven, and the kingdom was moving. Yes, many refused. But the end of the verse would read this way, forceful men are taking possession of it. There were the vigorous, violent, forceful who dared to step out, who dared to break with tradition, who dared at all costs to separate themselves from the system, who came and took possession of the reign of God, who enthroned Jesus Christ as Lord. And by that, and that, by the way, is the meaning of a parallel statement over in Luke 16.10, where it says the law and the prophets were until John, but since that time the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed and everyone is forcing his way into it. So then, the first of these two interpretations is negative and the second is positive, but both are true. The negative is illustrated by the persecution of John. The positive is illustrated by the many people that John's preaching led to the Lord. So which, correct, which interpretation is correct? Well, you can pick either side, and I won't dogmatically say you're wrong, but based on the parallel passage in Luke that I just read to you, I think the second viewpoint, taking it as a middle voice verb, is more likely the correct interpretation. And there are excellent Bible scholars and commentators on both sides, but men like John MacArthur, James Montgomery Boyce, William Hendrickson, and Donald Carson hold the view that this refers to the vigorous, forceful advancement of the kingdom and the hard effort uh, to war against Satan's sin in the world that those entering the kingdom have to carry out. And after reading all of the various viewpoints, I found it hard to argue against such outstanding Bible teachers as those men. Uh, you say, well, does that express the proper perspective on salvation. Yes. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that if you're going to enter the narrow gate, you're going to have to realize that it's hard to enter, that there must be a striving. Listen to what it says, verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. You don't e just easily take Jesus Christ. You don't just easily enter the kingdom. There is a striving. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
You see, entrance into the kingdom requires earnest endeavor, untiring energy, and utmost exertion because Satan is mighty and his demons are powerful and sin holds us. <clears throat> but God can break through so that our hearts respond. The kingdom is not for weaklings. The kingdom is not for waverers and compromisers. It's not for Balaam's. It's not for rich young rulers. It's, for, it's not for would-be disciples who want to go home and collect their inheritance. It's not for those who want to go say goodbye to their mother. It's not for Demases. Kingdom is not for deferred prayers, unfulfilled promises, broken resolutions, or hesitant testimonies. The kingdom is for hard, sturdy-hearted folks <coughs> like Joseph and Nathan and Elijah and Daniel and Stephen and Lydia and Ruth and Paul. It's for men and women who are willing to enter it and affirm the Lordship of Christ. And I like that second view because it expresses the flow of context in the passage, which is a commendation of John. The kingdom is moving under John, and vigorous people are taking it. They're stepping out. Becoming a Christian means you step out against the flow. You go against the grain. It's a sense of violently pressing in, breaking the bands of your own sin and self. Just as a quick side note, there's a third interpretation which combines the other two. It says that the proper reading is that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and violent men are attacking it. In other words, they take the verb biazzo as a middle voice, but then they say that the violent men at the end of the verse are unbelievers who are attacking the kingdom, trying to stop its advance rather than being believers who are fighting to enter the kingdom. I will not deny the possibility that this third view has some attraction as a possible interpretation, but I keep going back to that parallel verse in Luke 16, which is clearly referring to those forcefully entering the kingdom as believers. So I believe that the violent men at the end of verse 12 in our text are believers who are forcefully entering the kingdom rather than those who hate God's kingdom. Yes? So for us non-Greek speaking people, um, <clears throat> I have the NASB, and I think you do too, one version of it. Um, it appears that the way it's translated so that we can understand it is the first interpretation. That's the way it appears in my voice. Are there any uh, translations that can clearly um, interpret it in the second? No. And that's why it is a huge debate among theologians and great men on both sides. Great men on both sides. This is MacArthur. The kingdom presses ahead relentlessly, and only the relentless press their way into it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anything to add from anybody else? I suppose in a paraphrase. <laughs> yeah, you can make it say what you wanted it to say if you wanted to paraphrase it. Yeah. Well, it's it's yes, it's it's the it's fighting it's the war against sin, Satan, and his demons as we progress with the kingdom. So the Arminian might say, that's how we're saved. No. We're already saved, and then we take the sanctification. That's how we take it by fire. A Calvinist would say that that's progressive sanctification, too. <laughs> yeah. But the Calvinist is right, right? John was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John was right. 
Well, let's stop. Yes, Frank? Bottom line, this is just an argument against this easy believism that's out there. Mm -hmm. Coming to the Lord and being a, a Christian in the world today is not something that is a simple belief and then you go on living the way you've been living. It's a battle. Mm -hmm. And we have, a, even Paul talked about it being a battle. Everything yeah. in the New Testament he talks about the Christian life is a battle, it's a war. And so, yes, it is violent. It is. I mean, there's a war going on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Who do we wrestle against? This demonic world, and they're not going to stop. And so, you know, basically, bottom line, it's hard to live as a child of God in a very dark and evil world. It's a fact. It is. We have to accept that. Yep. Well, let's stop swimming in the deep end of the pool and head back to the waiting pool for a little while, shall we? We come to verse 13, and we see that John is the culmination of everything. It says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's the culmination. He's the final prophet. Notice that it says, until John. That Greek word means up to, as far as, to, to that point, until Jesus used a word which clearly meant that John was the last of the prophets before the Messiah. Up to that point, there had been many prophets in Israel's history, but John was the last one. There would be no more. Everything from Adam to John the Baptist is moving along to the point that he pointed to Jesus Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And it's all one message from Genesis 3.15 when God first announces the Messiah is coming, all the way up to John the Baptist, the message was the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, and then John comes along and he says the Messiah is coming until that day when he pointed to Jesus and said he's here. So John was the culmination of all the prophets. He was it. He's the focus. Everything was swirling around him. The kingdom was moving violently through the godless human system and eager, vigorous people were pressing into it. Why? Because this is the climax. Everything has built up to John. And then verse 14, a marvelous verse. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now what does that mean? Simply this. In Malachi 4.5, it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. In other words, before the Messiah came to set up his kingdom on earth, <coughs> Elijah would come as a forerunner. Now, would that be a real Elijah? No. Elijah was not going to be reincarnated, but the forerunner would be one like Elijah. You say, how do you know that? Because that's what it says in Luke 1.17. It says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And the Jews recognized that John fit the pattern of the spirit of Elijah. Because in John 1.21, they asked him, are you Elijah? And he told him, I'm not. Now, if John says, I'm not Elijah, and Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, then we know what Matthew 4, 5 means, that God will send Elijah before the Messiah. It will be a man 
with the spirit and power of Elijah in his person and character, a powerful, rugged individual who will come and announce the kingdom. Jesus says, if you receive the kingdom, if you receive the message, if you open your hearts to the Messiah, then God will establish the earthly kingdom and John will have fulfilled that prophecy. He will have been that Elijah. But if you refuse the kingdom, then John is not going to fulfill that Elijah prophecy and there will yet be an Elijah type person to come in the future. Well, they didn't receive the kingdom, did they? So John was not that Elijah. But before the kingdom comes in the future, there are two witnesses who are going to come and prophesy for three and a half years. Read Revelation 11 sometime. From the description of their power and miracles and their message and their physical dress, they display the characteristics of Moses and Elijah. Some Bible teachers believe they are the real Moses and Elijah who will be sent back to earth by God. While I think that's possible, because God can do anything he wishes, I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but I do believe one of them will be that man with the spirit and power of Elijah who comes to announce the kingdom. John could have been that representative of Elijah if they had believed. And then the kingdom would have been established right then. But they didn't believe, and so he was not that Elijah. Even with John's powerful culmination of Old Testament history, even with his marvelous, privileged calling and his personal character, not everyone believed or appreciated him. Not everyone understood the significance of this man. So Jesus adds a final admonition and warning in verse 15. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, if John is the forerunner, then I am the king. And if I am the king, the kingdom is being offered to you. Don't refuse it. There's a twofold offer of the kingdom. Receive the Messiah into your heart. And if you as a nation receive me, I'll bring my kingdom to earth. They were offered both. The nation did not receive the Messiah. The few, a few received the king into their hearts and throughout history since that time, God's kingdom has come to those who have received Christ in their hearts. But there yet awaits a kingdom on this earth. John was the greatest man to live before Christ. But the greatest, the highest greatness God offers is not like John's. John was a unique man and greatly used by God in the redemptive scheme before the new covenant. But his greatness pales beside those who enter his spiritual kingdom through trust in him as Lord and Savior in the new, king, new covenant. True greatness is not being like John the Baptist, folks. True greatness is being like Christ. That is the one pearl of great value for which it's worth sacrificing everything else. And that brings us to the end of this passage. Any comments or questions as to about anything we covered today? Yes? Jim Myers came to our church at the Boston, Massachusetts a while back. And we had a Seder. He was explaining what the was teaching. And at one point he opened the door and he called for Elijah. Yeah. But in the Jewish mindset, if they rejected Messiah, what are they waiting for? No, 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 no. no. 
they, they are looking, they're still looking for their Messiah. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But the Jews are still looking for their Messiah. And they know that Elijah comes before him. So part of the tradition of the Passover Seder is that the youngest child in the family gets up and opens the door as a welcome to the Messiah. Steve Kreloff can tell you he did that all of his growing up years. He was the youngest child. He went and opened the door to allow Elijah to come in. I don't, I don't know. I'm not Jewish. Never have been. <laughs> not planning to be one. Okay, anything else? Good question. Okay. Uh, yes. What, what did the Jews do with John the Baptist? I mean, what do you mean, what do they do with him? Well, he's the forerunner of Christ. They don't believe that? Well, to put it, what do the Jews do with John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist, we read about John the Baptist where? The New Testament, right? Oh. As... As the guy who I may agree with on certain things but disagree with on his Jewishness, as Ben Shapiro once said, and I heard him say it is in his interview with John MacArthur, is uh, he refers to the New Testament as the fiction part of the Bible. Okay? And that's the typical view of your average Jew. They see the New Testament as the fiction part of the Bible. And so um, it's a... Uh, uh, John the Baptist is he, he's not an he's not an important character to them. Okay. Anything else? Yes, Larue. Uh, Bruce, would you put clear on that? Uh, my, she's leaving Hyderabad Village, and we had uh, a little fellowship with her. Actually, played cards with her yesterday to say goodbye, and <clears throat> we talked about the Lord, and she thought I. Uh, we were at, asking her, and she said, she prays to God. And we said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And she says, I don't believe in Jesus. And she, I said, the Bible says no one comes to the Father but through me. She said, I don't believe that. She said, she said like, is she Jewish? She is she, knows in her head she's going to heaven. Is she Jewish? No. No. She's just, I have never she's, just, she's, she's just your typical pagan. Mm. But mm. I want to give, I want to give her something. I want to get, uh, I just, she just felt sick. She just said, I mean, anything we said to her, she just said, I know I'm going to have it. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's what she's they need. And the book answers in Genesis, um, the author addresses what she just, just said. He said, the greatest verse in the whole Bible is, in the beginning, God. And then later on, uh, several chapters later, he says, nobody that believes in God only is going to heaven. Right. Yeah, there's, there's a world of people who say they believe yeah. in God. <laughs> yeah. Satan believes in God. Yeah, yeah. Satan, the devil. Satan. Yeah. Okay, well. Claire? So pray for Claire, too. All right. Well, I guess our time is, I'm not going to try to get into the next one. There's no sense in trying. So let's uh, stop and and close with prayer.